Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. We delve back into the dynamic world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. It's been a transformative year since we first began our journey, right in the aftermath of the FTX debacle. Today, we're witnessing the ripple effects of these events and their impact on the global crypto landscape. Let's rewind to November 2022 a pivotal moment now recognized as the bottom for Bitcoin and a turning point in crypto sentiment. Fast forward to today, and we see a mixed bag of developments. Developer activity, as tracked by Electric Capital, has returned to its 2021 levels with around 20,000 monthly active developers. Exchange volumes for cryptocurrencies spot have stabilized at $35 billion daily, a significant drop from their peak, but indicative of a more mature market. Despite these challenges, the resilience of the crypto market is undeniable. Bitcoin's price has surged two and a half times this year, Solana has skyrocketed almost six-fold, and Coinbase stock has quadrupled. This remarkable recovery highlights the market's optimism and its anticipation of continued institutional adoption of blockchain infrastructure. The crypto industry is at crossroads, with recent regulatory actions against high-profile figures like the FTX founder and Binance's CEO signaling a new era of compliance and transparency. This shift is reshaping how traditional financial institutions interact with the blockchain, focusing on entrusted intermediaries, OTC trading, and centralized venues. One of the most exciting developments is the prospect of a Bitcoin ETF in 2024. Stablecoins are also making waves, offering universal access to tokenized dollars and revolutionizing financial operations with features like 24-7 availability traceability, and instant settlement. Coinbase is introducing identity verification on-chain, touting the service as a key step towards using open-source, public good infrastructure to enable the next billion users on-chain. Our guest today is Tony Dong, head of capital formation at OP Crypto. OP Crypto is making significant strides in the crypto investment world, launching a new fund of funds that aims to tap into the high potential of emerging venture capital managers. Their timing couldn't be better, as smaller funds historically show a higher likelihood of yielding impressive returns, a fact supported by extensive research data going back to 1978. Smaller funds are 50% more likely to return more than larger ones, and have an average IOR of 17.4%, compared to 9.7% for larger ones. Before joining OP Crypto, Tony honed his skills in business development at US Bitcoin Corp and gained valuable experience in real estate, private equity, and consulting. He's an alumnus of the University of Southern California and holds an MBA from Columbia Business School. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Funny story, actually, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I was actually born in Indianapolis, Indiana. Moved when I was five, so pretty much don't remember much of the time there, but my parents immigrated from China in the 80s, and my mom got one of her first jobs at Eli Lilly. So one of the big pharma companies out there. And when I was five, we actually moved to Thousand Oaks, California, where Amgen is based out of. So pretty much grew up there for most of my life. And yeah, I mean, as a kid, enjoyed playing outside. Tennis was one of my big hobbies at the time and playing sports with the friends and whatnot. And ultimately decided to go get my degree at USC in undergrad, studied business. So that was a great four years. Made a ton of friends that are still super close today, became a huge college football fan and started my career after that. So growing up, 
So you have no recollection of Indianapolis. I was hoping you'd come up with a great like racing story or I'm a big motorsports fan. So anything that touches Indianapolis always brings back obviously the race. But they were just thinking about the aura of the the city when it comes to motorsports. So no involvement, I'm assuming, on your part there. I mean, the only memory of that is when I was in kindergarten, they did like a mini Indy 500 and everyone was on their like tricycles and whatnot. <laughs> so that's probably my earliest recollection that's relevant. But still to this day, I am a Indianapolis Colts fan for NFL, for better or for worse. That's the only thing that ties me back to that that place at this time. Yeah. And some old school Baltimore Colts fan would take offense at that for anyone who knows a little bit about NFL history. But yeah, the Colts had a had a great run under Peyton and some good years there and, and a great team overall. So in terms of, like I said, you, you played tennis. Did you play competitively or how deep into tennis did you get? Or was it just like extracurricular playing with friends? Yeah, so I took lessons starting in third grade. So played throughout high school, played on my high school tennis team, but that kind of fizzled out when I got to college. But post-USC, really started getting back into it more on the recreational side. Especially living in California, it was super easy to get a court. A lot of my friends played as well, and it was just a really good way to get cardio. I hate running. I don't like doing other types of cardio, but tennis is the one thing like it just doesn't feel like exercise to me. So it was really good to just get out there and get the blood flowing. Yeah. Running with a purpose, I like to call it. It's hard to run unless you have a good reason to. There's reasons they say a lot of marathon athletes come from Kenya because people walk long, long distances to get to work, to get to school. And just you get into this culture of exercising in that way, but again, with a purpose. So I hear you there. In terms of the types of subject matters that you gravitated towards in high school and college, like, did you already have in mind the fact that you would wanted to go into investing with the technology bent? I mean, were you geeking out? I speak to a lot of guests. Usually some are pretty scientifically inclined when it comes down to it. I was wondering, like, what were your areas of interest when it came to studying? Yeah, absolutely. So going into USC, I ended up double majoring in business and accounting. So there really wasn't like a digital asset, crypto tech interest at the get-go. But funny enough, one of the guys that lived across from me in my dorm my freshman year was mining Bitcoin in his room. And this was back in 2013 and things were just getting started. We were like, what is this fake internet money? Oh, it's worth something. And that was like my first experience like with digital assets. Ended up buying some in 2014, played around with it loosely. But at the same time, because I was studying business and accounting, ultimately ended up working at PwC in their deal advisory practice for the first two years and then pivoted away from that. But yeah, I mean, always had interest in learning about companies, learning about new technologies. So I'm really happy my path led me to where I am today. And so it sounds like you spent a little bit of time in Paris too, right? Didn't you? Yeah. So USC, at least the business school, does a really good job in terms of encouraging their students to go abroad for a semester. Ended up getting Paris as my study abroad. So lived there for about five months. Was in a master's program at uh, ESCP, which was a ton of fun. I mean, the way that they grade you there was very much like pass-fail. You had class 
two, maybe three days out of the week. So for us coming from the US, we had tons of tons of free time. A lot of other similar schools were doing the same program, US based. So met a lot of friends there, was able to travel Europe, but also get to learn more about the French culture and really fell in love with the place. Yeah, no, it's also a great school. I mean, it's in the top three business schools over in France. So I'm French, was born there and went to college there. And are really like different, you know, you either go into engineering and the business track is a little bit different. And the SCP is definitely, it's a top three school. So it's an excellent institution. This brings me to it's a couple of things I wanted to unpack. One is crypto and just overall digital assets investing is an incredibly global profession. You can't really think necessarily locally. You'd have to have such awareness as to the different trends and currents and different motivations, not to mention regulation. So being that it sounds like you're a first-generation immigrant but grew up very much in the U.S., grounded in that culture, how was it getting exposed to like more global set of colleagues and classmates? And in general, like how do you think about maintaining that global exposure with, with what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I was lucky to grow up in a pretty multicultural city from the get-go. And even going to USC, that was also the case, especially when I went to go get my MBA at Columbia. A lot of the students are international. So always having a global mindset from a young age also was traveling back to China every couple of years, visiting relatives there. So I thought that was super cool. And to your point about investing in digital assets and crypto today, it's very, very global. So to be able to learn from a lot of the experiences, talking with people, doing business, et cetera, it's definitely helped like in this line of work for sure. The other thing I will say, a tremendous amount of respect for the accounting routing that you have. I have some really good friends who've gone on to become excellent investors. There's something about, and I used to really quite enjoy, believe it or not, accounting classes always have. It's sort of like, it's a nice, tidy discipline. And once you get it, and once you understand also how to read financial statements and paint the picture of what a business looks like, I think it gives you a tremendous edge. And in that vein, as an investor, and without jumping into some of the topics that we'll talk about, what is your overall take on founders' aptitude in that field? Like their overall understanding of the mechanics of the businesses that they run. They might be great technologists, they might be great growth engineers. What is your take on the overall aptitude level and the ability to run a PL? Yeah, see, that's something that I think a lot of founders that don't necessarily have that solid business background will struggle with, and at least in the beginning, which is why it's so important for folks to really align themselves with advisors, other venture funds, et cetera, that can really help them form a business the best way that it should be. Obviously, having some business background, like I could not really be a huge asset on the technical side when doing development, especially with a lot of these blockchain technologies and whatnot. But I think it's a good mix when you have a variety of experiences and put the right people in the room to really push something forward in a productive way. Yeah, makes sense. So important. And to your point, having investors really get a grasp of that. Well, probably means at some point you'll get recommended a good CFO. I mean, a much later stage, obviously. And just good sounding board as to what are the right things to do. Walk us a little bit through your career progression. So in the first few years, and then how does it progress? And what kind of jobs did you gravitate towards? And then 
I think one overarching question is you said you bought Bitcoin in 2014. How much of it did you buy and how much of it did you keep? <laughs> yeah. So I first purchased Bitcoin back in 2014, used Coinbase, Circle, et cetera. And this was really playing around with the ecosystem and seeing what was going on there. Local Bitcoins was a big thing. I had never actually used that, but ultimately didn't really have the conviction to hold that. So I ended up selling all of it. And I really wish I didn't. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. but it's funny to think now that I work in the space, but at the time, I really didn't believe in it. That's the narrative that, especially when we look for new investors and stuff, to basically show them and have them drink the Kool-Aid that we've been drinking for a couple of years now. Yeah. So how do you get from going in and working in real estate, right? In real estate, private equity. What is the transition there to going to US Bitcoin Corp? I have a few friends there, actually, good friends with Matt Pusak over there, chief uh, business officer over there. Great company, great investor base. How'd you end up working there? Yeah. So really, really funny story, actually. When I was applying to business school, I wrote all my essays on I want to work at Blackstone in real estate, private equity, a more institutional shop, really pursue the same path that I was on. But in the nine month period, when I quit my job and was kind of waiting to go to move to New York, Asher, who's one of the co-founders of US Bitcoin, approached me when they first started the company. So I was actually employee number one, helping them source energy sites and do some business development and strategy on that end. So really saw the company grow from ground up. Matt is a great guy, also went to USC. We worked pretty closely when we overlapped there and ultimately ended up wanting to do something more investing related, which is how I eventually transitioned into OP crypto. But that experience really got me back into Bitcoin, digital assets like blockchain, all that. So it was very formative. And by the time I got to business school, I realized I wanted to do something a little bit crazier, high risk, more exciting, and decided to drop all the real estate stuff and pursue a career in crypto. And I'm pretty glad that I wrote all my essays on the real estate stuff because they probably wouldn't accept me if I <laughs> went in saying I wanted to work at a crypto fund. But it is what it is. And here we are now. What'd you get of business school? What was your take on that? I thought in terms of the network, it was absolutely incredible. Like I mentioned, 50% of at least my class at CBS was international. So it was amazing traveling the world with a bunch of your classmates, understanding their different cultures, perspectives, but also really just being able to move to a new city. I mean, I had pretty much lived in California my entire life before I moved out to New York to get my degree. So everything was new. You're in a new city with new friends, meeting new people all the time. And I thought that was the biggest takeaway from the experience. In terms of actual knowledge and that curriculum, I think if you want to pursue a more established career in something like banking or consulting or PM, like business school has amazing professors and case studies and really tease you up to do well in those interviews and ultimately land those jobs. But for something that's more on the fringes like crypto, for example, the curriculum really wasn't there when I first got there to make a meaningful impact on what I know now. They obviously added a few classes 
my second year when things got a little bit more hot in the market. But yeah, I mean, for this profession, I think you don't need your MBA at all. But for me, it was very worth it. And the fact that I got to move to a new city, meet a bunch of great people and effectively take two years off that were awesome. Yeah. I mean, look, Columbia is unique for many reasons, right? I mean, to your point, it has some of the best curriculums, especially if you mentioned a few professions, but you think about value investing, right? I mean, there's a whole course there where anyone who wants to really go deep in value investing, now there's debate as to whether value investing is possible in this day and age and the cross-section of names that trade publicly is a separate matter, but a great institution and also very unique in that it is in New York City. It's not like Dartmouth or, I mean, I guess University of Chicago, where I went, is in Chicago, but there's nothing like being in the heart of New York City and literally hop on a subway and go interview and network with some of the brightest minds and most accomplished minds in finance, if that's the area of work that, that you want to be in. So it's a very unique place, I think, to go to business school or, or even college And from that standpoint. Coming back to some of the more frontier topics, I think it's a sign that you were tackling or becoming interested in those emerging technologies. Like Typically, they're not being taught in school until they become mainstream. And whilst there might be, I think, educational aspects or research aspects that might be touched upon when professors are starting to venture into these new frontiers on the research front, as far as a curriculum, it's very rare until an industry is very well established. But school, I think, is important in as much as it sets the foundation and gives you the tools that you'll be able to use no matter what the subject matter. And if it is an emerging technology, then you you should have the tool set to be able to approach that. How did you first get acquainted with the team at uh, OP? So this was also a super interesting story. Like I mentioned, when I started business school, I really didn't have the intention of going down one of the more established routes. And in New York, every September around that time, Masari hosts a big crypto conference. So this was back in 2021. It just so happened that David Gann, who is the GP of OP Crypto, was spinning out of Huobi and just launched his fund, which is now OP Crypto. And raised about 50 million for that. At Masari, at one of these events, OP Crypto and Huobi were doing joint thing. I so happened to go and met with some of the team members there, like Lucas and Calvin, and was like, hey, I'm super interested in digital assets and crypto. I worked at a Bitcoin mining company for the nine months before this. Would love to offer my services. I I'm getting my MBA full-time right now, but can eke out 20, 25 hours a week to work for free to get some more experience. And that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. I knew like going into venture without previous investing experience is always tough, but I figured it's free labor and they can say no. So might as well try and have been with the team ever since in more and more serious roles as I've spent more time with the company. So it was really an apprenticeship move on your part, right? To seek the exposure, to prove yourself. I have friends who did that actually in business school and follow the exact same blueprint. And it paid off well, especially for private equity. Because to your point, it's a free option. And if you're able to prove yourself, it usually leads to bigger and better roles within the firm, which it sounds like it did here. Was there a point where you were thinking, 
okay, well, say I've put in a few months in, should I be looking around? Should I be looking at who else is out there? What clinched it and, and what made the case in your mind as far as this specific team and, and why them? Well, I always look at my career with a lens of where can I get the most experience and upside. And I always jived with the fact that I wanted to be at more of a startup or an earlier stage company that was scrappier and had a lot more room for growth. So being as OP Crypto was just founded and the team was really quite small then, they only had three people at the time. I knew that I was able to take on a lot more responsibility than previously I would be given if I joined a larger shop. And that's what really excited me. So was able to really see the business inside and out from pretty much every single function within the business. And that was a really unique experience for me and something I wanted to continue learning and growing with at the company. So how much more complex is being a venture capitalist in the digital space in crypto? Because people usually look at it as its own world and for a reason, right? There's complexity in the technology. There's regulatory complexity. There are a slew of issues that really sets it apart. But I wanted to hear it from you and how you distinguish it. You and I attend venture capital events and mingle and, and have friends in the more traditional venture capital world. How do you set like that delineation and what makes you guys do differently? I think in this sector, things just move so much faster. You have all these new verticals and interesting technologies coming out that come and go. And one of the other big differences is the fact that because there's such a lack of regulatory clarity, there's a lot of bad actors that come into the space. You obviously saw with Terra and FTX, et cetera. So you have to be very, very agile and pretty disciplined to find the projects that are going to be lasting. But no day is like the one previously, which makes it super exciting at the same time. Yeah. And I guess it also brings another question, and there's an ongoing debate as well in saying, should one specialize in AI or crypto, or are they just enabling technologies? And ultimately, one should think with respect to their verticals and what's really their expertise as to how that enabling technology fits in. Another camp is going to say, no, no, they're really a different set of opportunities. And in that sense, they're going to spur innovation in ways that doesn't necessarily integrate with existing verticals, right? So where do you stand in that debate? I'll give you a little bit more color on this. Like you could say, okay, well, take financial services primitives, right? That's a straightforward one, right? You might say, well, crypto and blockchain is a phenomenal enabling technology to deliver and roll out and enhance the delivery of financial services in many different contexts, right? And as such, it's enabling technology. You could say the same thing in some consumer apps that I know some developers are working on right now, yet they see themselves as being crypto builders and the investors that invest in them are crypto investors. What is your stance on that? I think ultimately the blockchain opens up so many opportunities across all different types of verticals. I think we're going to move into a world where we see a lot more convergence between fintech and blockchain, blockchain and AI. It's really like 
I wouldn't say like anyone should pigeonhole themselves to just being a crypto builder, crypto investor, because as the world moves forward, I think a lot of these applications will become intertwined and you'll see a lot more, like I said, convergence in all those fields. So you said you joined the fund at an early stage and it was a small team, small asset base. Where does it stand now? How are the roles split? What kind of roles do you end up taking on and how do people divvy up the work and the effort within the firm? Yeah, absolutely. So today, OP Crypto has about 10 full-time employees. We actually did a big push in Q2 of this year where we hired four team members out of the APAC region, really coming together with our thesis of connecting East and West. Obviously, David used to be at Huobi. He spent most of his career in China and Lucas as well. So really trying to have the edge of assisting Western projects getting and breaking into the Asian markets, but also doing the same for Asian projects in the Western markets. So with that in mind, we hired some investors, researchers, operations manager, and they all sit in Asia, which I think gives us a pretty solid advantage in being on basically 24-7. As it pertains to the US-based team, most of our management sits here. So David and Lucas, Calvin, who's our head of platform, and we also have a number of research analysts and investment associates as well. For me specifically, I've moved more into a role that I wear a bunch of hats, but mainly on the external facing side. So first point of contact with all of our limited partners across both of our funds. I uh, do a lot of the actual fundraising when we do that, and constantly meeting potential new investors and telling them the story of OP Crypto. And along that line, do a lot of the business development and try to find new funds, new service providers, new kind of contacts that might help our portfolio company or venture fund in any way. And lastly, I do a lot of work on the fund to fund side. So that's where I actually spend most of my time with an investor mindset to actually diligence managers coming to the space. So I can go into that in a little bit more detail, but yeah, it's a wide variety of things. No, I'm super excited to hear as a member of a team that went out and raised a crypto fund and has had staying power in the space, how you're going about finding emerging managers and sourcing emerging managers and investing in them, something that obviously is dear to my heart. We do that, love to find and have a pretty stringent and rigorous process as to how we vet those emerging managers because we think there's a tremendous amount of outperformance if you pick that right. And it's a great way to build a portfolio. So look forward to chatting about this. You know, wanted to hear your thoughts on having straddled like, you know, a roller coaster few years of the exuberance of 21 and the crash of 2022 and how that's affected how investors think and structure investments. I was chatting with someone from Sky9 a couple of months ago and asking them how they think about the space right now and just realizing that a lot of these token deals entered into without a, you know, a lot of strings attached, to be honest, right? And so when the market was going well, people didn't really care so much about information rights and governance and the, the topics and matters that are well ingrained, right? Even in a bull market in traditional VC, I think there's some discipline around term sheets and because people know, they know that when things don't work out according to the plan, it's probably a good thing to have in place. Love to hear your thoughts on 
the transition from alt token deals, I think what has now been a healthier comeback to the more traditional means of investing in, and your views on token as an expression of your views. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you're exactly right with the cycle of, of what happened over the last couple of years. And I think that the space is still very, very young. And a lot of people learned a lot of key takeaways from their time investing over the last couple of years. For us specifically, when we look at a project, our preference is actually for equity with token warrants. So you have the underlying fundamental equity in the company, but also have the upside and liquidity of tokens whenever they issue them. And I think that's a lot better way to align yourself with the team and also have the liquidity for like a crypto fund. Overall as well, OP crypto on the venture side, we've been super, super diligent in our deployment. So we've been out to market over two years now and have deployed approximately 40%, which has been a lot slower than a lot of our peers. And that's because being experienced in these markets, David's been through three cycles already. We really didn't buy into the frothiness and exuberance of 21 and bleeding into 22 and really waited patiently for valuations to come down more reasonably. And especially in this day and age, because there's a lot less hype around it. I think a lot of the tourist founders and investors have left predominantly. We're actually able to get into much more fairly priced deals, but also be able to have a little bit more negotiating power when it comes to setting the terms. So for example, you mentioned people didn't care as much before when the market's really hot. We definitely are able to set the terms a little bit more fairly to the VC fund in, in this day and age, which is better for investors and I think overall better for the whole ecosystem. Yeah, agreed. I think it's healthier. And look, they're asset pricing underpinnings to looking. I mean, one of the, the griefs that more traditional investors have had towards crypto is the valuations overall were a lot higher. And when valuations get out of control, I think there's some anchoring there and there's some muscle memory, right? So it takes a while for things to deflate. One of the things that I've seen is comparatively to other sectors of tech, I think valuations have had a harder time coming down and so that reset, despite the carnage that took place in 2022, I think there's still founders are still asking for pricing that is, is pretty aggressive. But there is a rationale in that if you're having hybrid deals and there's a liquidity premium to being able to generate liquidity from token holdings that are either an expression of your equity investment or they might be an expression of other revenue stream or utility. And that has a price, right? So pricing that option is really what an investor needs to do. It's true that if you have that as part of the deal and there's an ability to extract liquidity potentially, right, along the way, that should make, if we think about options pricing, it should make the asset a little bit more expensive. But I think the jury's still out in terms of what will prevail, not to mention the regulatory environment that remains probably the darkest cloud looming there's still a complete lack of clarity around what does it mean to issue a token, what are tokens for? And so I'm looking forward to seeing how that becomes clearer over the next couple of years. What's your approach to, before we step into more of the fun, the fun activity, wanted to hear a little bit more about how do you guys develop a robust pipeline of direct deal opportunities? How do you source? Because that, again, 
fund is all about origination and the quality of underwriting. How do you deal with the origination piece? Yeah, absolutely. I think top of funnel deal flow really comes from founders because they're in the space themselves. They obviously have an amazing founder network of other folks that are vetted through them. And because David's been in the space for so long, he actually worked really closely on the investment side, fund to fund side, listing side at Huobi. He really met a lot of stellar founders back in 2018, 2019, when they're first getting off their feet. And that's been paying really great dividends today and maintaining those relationships, really being top of mind for those folks that he really worked closely with before. And those are really good referrals that we value a ton. Separately, it's all about deal flow sharing with other venture funds as well. So being able to add value, share deals, co-invest with some of our closer allies is another great way for deal flow. And also just putting our ear to the floor on a lot of the accelerator and incubators in the space. So like Alliance, Orange Dow, and a lot of the other ones, great projects come from there. Sometimes too early for us to invest in on a pre-seed, but that's why they go through these programs to basically find their product market fit and really accelerate their business to something that's real. And being close with the people that run those types of programs is also like a third channel for really good deal flow. Yeah. I mean, there's no question that a strong founder network is critical, right? And that's just not something you can create overnight. And it goes to the staying power of staying committed within the space, being known as having stayed committed in the space to your point about tourist investors and Look, investors have to be pragmatic and also move capital where capital earns the highest return. But I think for builders, especially knowing that you have investors who've gone through the trial and tribulations, who've been there, who've been faithful supporters, I think ultimately pays off in in the reputation that you build. And as we know, the industry is small. It's gotten small over the last year. So the world travels and reputation precedes you for sure. So how does it work on vetting but also sourcing emerging funds. I mean, in this day, who is out there really thinking about starting an emerging manager in crypto? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's always funny because in the toughest times and the deepest troughs in crypto is always the best time to be deploying. So time and time again, you've seen it with the different cycles. 2018 was pretty bad year for crypto in general, but that's when a lot of these funds got started and really outperformed in 2021 and 2022. And where we are in the cycle is pretty similar to that. So I think for the emerging managers coming to the space, they see the potential, right? And if they're able to raise currently and deploy into projects at this day and age, there's a lot of upside to be had there. So I think as opposed to raising when the market is super hot, you're stuck with a fund that can only deploy into projects that are at super highly inflated valuations. It's a lot more competitive to get into. So I would argue that the emerging managers coming to the space today will do better than the ones that are able to raise in a bull market. So there's a few things to unpack here. I think fundamentally, given also the liquidity drought, right? As you and I know, it's incredibly hard right now to raise from LPs. And I think there's, it's almost like an arbitrage 
if you can leverage your existing base of LPs, which you guys have built over the years, bring capital to market in ways that a starter fund might not be able to. You're able to extract that liquidity premium that realizes over the next fund life cycle. So I think there's an overlap here between what is going to be market beta, for sure, right? And there's nothing wrong with having good market timing skills. That is alpha in itself. Not that your entire strategy should be predicated in this, but let's say same thing with fintech right now, Valuate public valuations are at cyclical trough, right? And there's an argument to be made to say, look, it might linger around here for another couple of years, but whoever's building now, whoever's investing now, it's not going away, right? Things need to be solved. New primitives need to be launched. New problems need to be solved. And it's a good time to deploy capital from a valuation perspective. If on top of that, you're able to raise the money, you will earn a liquidity premium over time. Now, that's for, I think, what are cyclical factors that one might capture in that trade. I'm curious what your take is on the specifics of what makes a crypto emerging manager today someone that you would want to underwrite as a fund of fund? What makes them stand out in their ability to go beyond the liquidity premium that really effectively you will help them capture because you can help them raise money? and the fact that they're buying the lows. So there's another tier of outperformance in alpha, which again comes from ability to originate and ability to underwrite. How do you assess that? Yeah, absolutely. Before I jump into the nuance there, broadly speaking, what makes me really excited about emerging managers, as opposed to some more established managers in the space today, is that emerging managers are typically raising anywhere from 20 to 50 million, whereas the larger players in Fund 3, Fund 4 Vintage have 500 million plus AUM. And especially in this time, it's quite difficult to actually deploy those pools of capital. So that's why you see a lot of these larger funds have to have a liquid strategy where they're actually buying tokens in order to really deploy the capital that they raised. A large fund is never going to be willing to put in 250k into an early stage deal. Dragonfly, for example, I think their minimum check is about 3 million, which is larger than a lot of pre-seed rounds and they it's difficult to deploy that amount. So the emerging managers really have the flexibility to get into almost every deal. And through the fund of fund lens, one of the main things that we diligence is how specialized are they? So for example, Some of the funds that we invest in are very, very vertically deep in their knowledge, and they really only touch one particular sector. And I think the specialization, especially at the earliest stage, gives you that value add, that alpha, if you will, um, to find the best projects building in the space. And to aggregate those in a fund-to-funds format really allows us to pick managers that are able to outperform, and that's what we're most bullish on today. I couldn't agree more. I think you captured one is obviously the alignment, the alignment with investors, but also founders, right? At the stage they're at, two very important things. So emerging managers are going to work for carry. They're not going to work for management fees. They're not at the stage where, to your point, like some of the larger funds are at where, you know what? They're already clipping a nice little coupon there in terms of management fees. So the incentive structure starts shifting, right? You get into a game where you're trying to preserve returns as opposed to creating outsized returns in the beginnings. 
And then there's the, there's the notion of hyper-focus, right? So assembling a portfolio of emerging funds, not only do you get the alignment, but the worst mistake you could make is investing in generalists or highly diversified emerging funds, because then you're losing essentially the benefits of that portfolio construction. By building a portfolio of highly focused managers, you're actually able to capture diversification together with concentration of bets. So out of your entire portfolio, obviously some of them will not succeed, but you're not going to get these average outcomes if you do that, right? Because essentially you're long correlation. You're going to get either like a full in, go big or go home portfolio outcome. And personally, that's what I like about this portfolio construction approach because it's a nice way to tap into an emerging frontier space, but without actually having to go and like make the actual bets, like the individual deals, which that you and I know is is difficult and incredibly risky, right? So if each fund has a portfolio of those emerging deals and they're highly focused in what they know, the outcome is usually quantitatively, if you look at the portfolio construction level, bound to outperform, assuming you assemble a certain number of bets in there. So I'm a big fan of that model and understand its merits. And I think it has a lot of merits for investors. We're certainly one of them, but I'm assuming your LPs are receptive to that as well. How's it been overall? We touched a little bit on it. We talked about the liquidity drought. You're out there, you know, you and I chatted at a recent event. And what's the finger on the pulse like climate when it comes to LPs? You guys have a track record, you've raised money before, but overall, like how's it been and how does it continue to be to raise LP money? Yeah, the market has been super, super tough over the last 18 months. For us specifically, we've even struggled raising for the fund of funds because it's not a concept that I think a lot of investors will typically deploy into, especially in a space like this. For broadly speaking, in the US, given the lack of regulatory clarity, I think a lot of the US institutions and family offices are really pumping the brakes a little bit because they don't want to be investing in an asset that could potentially be deemed a security. Where you do have a little bit more potential to raise funds in today's day and age is actually abroad. So, you know, Token 2049, we had a few folks go over there. It's very, very vibrant. I think Singapore and Hong Kong specifically are doing really great work in terms of laying down foundations of providing that regulatory clarity. And because of that, and because of the nature of the Asian investor, which is a little bit more risk on, they're actually actively deploying as opposed to the US, which is waiting and seeing. There's a lot of folks going to the Middle East as well. Obviously, the Emirates have been on a great campaign to go on a track of technology and digitalization. We haven't personally raised from that region, but it's definitely something that we're looking into as well. But long story short, I think right now you kind of need to go outside to raise significant amounts. Otherwise, family offices in the US are still the best way to go since they're a little bit more flexible with their mandate and can make a decision faster than a lot of institutions. Makes sense. Do you find that those family offices are already crypto savvy and have been in the space or you're able to make the case to investors who haven't tiptoed in at this point that this is the right juncture to, for them to make the move? I think it's really, really tough even today. So the best success that I will typically find is finding a family office that has previously already deployed into a crypto fund or maybe a direct project 
that has a little bit of conviction in the space already, it's almost impossible to convince someone who hasn't invested or deployed yet that this is a good idea, especially in the context of a fund of funds or an early stage venture fund. So really struggling with that a little bit, but it makes sense. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I want to find out first if I talk to a potential LP is their level of crypto nativeness, I suppose, or if they understand what's going on. But that's to say, we're still in a very interesting time where we're not raising for another 12 months. So building relationships and spending a little bit more time with family offices that don't know as much is still generally good ROI for us in the case that things do bounce back and they are a little bit more willing to deploy. We definitely want to be one of the first that they reach out to. Yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. Look, I think when people say it's a tough environment right now, I think, you know, it's not like you go into meetings and people just dress you down and ask all kinds of tough questions. And it's just, we're in a world right now where a lot of liquidity is being tied up in existing LP stakes. You know, family offices can't necessarily redeploy. And so it's a question of like just not getting meetings, right? For the most part, it's been a very cold shoulder type environment. And it's good that you guys have a pre-established reputation and foothold in the space probably helps versus, especially again, I love your strategy of arbing that and funneling that into some of the managers you think are going to outperform. Let's talk a little bit about the market. It's been a, a busy 2023. The asset class from a pricing perspective, at least in the publicly traded side, is up. Coinbase is leading the free on the equity side. It's up almost 200% year to date. We're again flirting with $100. Bitcoin inching ever closer to 40K. And we've had this step function throughout the year where we got new attempts that were taking new highs. So it certainly feels like there's a little bit more confidence. And last but not least, Solana's just done phenomenally well this year. And I'd love to pick your brains as to the overall view of the firm and your group as to the overall macro context when it comes to asset prices in the digital asset space. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've definitely seen a significant uptick over the last two months, which for everyone in the industry, including us, has been a pretty great sigh of relief. But I'm not entirely convinced that this is the beginning of a full-on bull market. There's still a lot of potential downward pressures especially with the macro environment that could push things lower to year end. I am, however, quite bullish in 2024. Everyone talks about this BlackRock Bitcoin ETF and how that's going to impact liquidity into the ecosystem. And it's going to be pretty significant, I think. Like At least having a tool where institutions and even the average user can buy Bitcoin directly that's sanctioned by the US will just have insane amounts of inflows into the system that will trickle down into other parts of venture projects, etc. that I'm super excited about. Yeah, I think when it comes to Bitcoin in, in particular, I mean, the technicals are really hard to fight. I mean, mathematically, if we think about the flow dynamics of dollars entering the asset, the outstanding float, of coins that are actually traded versus huddled and mathematically almost like it's just you'd want to go out and tell people like look if you're not in the trade over a multi-year horizon like it's just you're going to miss out in a big way 
There are very few trades that are so asymmetric, in my opinion. And then you've got some technical factors, such as given that in the smart money, if you talk to options traders, you know, the amount of like slippy gamma on the upside with Bitcoin options is really helping sort of these like step function moves up. So that to me is compelling. I know I'm bullish, but I have a hard time coming up with a counter thesis other than complete disappearance of liquidity, which I don't see it. We're in an environment where liquidity is scarcer than it was and the price are going up. And more than likely, at some point, we'll hit a point where the economy slows down. The Fed has to come back and other governments around the world and re-inject liquidity. And I think that's going to be supportive of the assets, going to be negative for the dollar. So, And I think there's a real case to be made that Bitcoin overtakes other forms of stores of value like gold on a global basis, because it's quite frankly easier to move Bitcoin around than it is to move gold physically. I think... I agree with you that asset prices being on the upswing trickles, whether directly or indirectly, into the asset class, right? Wealth is created. It emboldens people within the asset class to redeploy, either by using their holdings as collateral or taking a little bit off the table. So I think that should be net beneficial. What do you think of, so we talk about these high profile coins and names, and I didn't talk about Ethereum, obviously, but it's clear that there's a tremendous amount being built and a case being made there for holding the asset. How do you think about the long tail of outs and that have been in existence versus what is potentially being baked and created today? Like, Do you think there's staying power? Do you think a lot of the coins are probably not going to be around because the business models will not survive? Like, What is your take on that? I do think that there's a world where there's multiple projects and flagship names that can coexist with one another. But where I do find some skepticism is a lot of the larger projects, like, for example, Algorand, Polkadot, Avalanche even, well, Avalanche has gone up quite significantly over the last week. Like, there really hasn't been a huge value proposition that I've seen. So it's my view that things will eventually consolidate in a lot of these larger names Ethereum has always been the first, and a lot of these layer twos, Optimism, Arbitrum coming off them are quite compelling. And now you have Solana, which you mentioned has gone up a lot over the last couple months. And you're finally seeing a really, really strong developer base coming back to that system. And I think ultimately they've been able to prove that they have something beyond just ties to FTX, which I think held them down for a long time. So pretty bullish on both. ETH, the layer twos, as well as Solana. Yeah, I mean, it's emerging. I mean, if you're going to make a case for a high performance throughput architecture, and look, it's a known quantity that Jump has been a big supporter of that ecosystem. And there's been turnaround coming around the past year and saying, we've got this great asset, we've got to commit resources to it. And if you think about payment and trading infrastructures, there's an incredibly compelling case to be made for adoption there. It's a robust development environment on Rust, rigorous development environment that will attract top-notch talent. And out of all the, the layer one projects, I think it's having a second win because I think we're moving away to its perception, quite frankly, as being a little bit dubious of an asset just because of, to your point, some of the supporters or holders of the asset. I think there's still a question in my mind, that's just a personal opinion as to how do you price that asset though, right? Because I think of an asset, again, as being essentially a discounted stream of cash flows. And as much as 
there's a scarcity aspect to it that I can kind of relate to. But in order for an environment to thrive, you need that token to be widely available and usable by as many developers and companies out there, right, to make it mainstream. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around what is the, aside from trading, the the commodity really that it is, how do you price it from an investment perspective long-term? Like I get the Bitcoin thesis, right, for a slew of other reasons. You know, I'm still, again, from a trading perspective, I understand how you can make a lot of money trading Solana on the long and short side, but thinking about the long-term investment thesis. So do you have any thoughts on that specifically and how you guys think about pricing that ecosystem? Yeah, for us, we're not investing in any of those majors, given that we are primarily venture investors at the pre-seed and seed stage. However, through the fund of funds, we actually invested in a fund called Syncrasy, run by my friends, Dan and Ryan, and their long-only hedge fund that takes more of a research-driven approach to actually evaluating large caps and having very high conviction in terms of investing in them through their hedge fund. and. While it is quite difficult to value some of these tokens, there are some, for example, Maker is a good example, that actually have cash flows that are determinable and you can do more of a traditional financial analysis on what the value of that company should be. Unfortunately, the vast majority of tokens are still quite speculative in nature and it's really hard to pin down a certain price. You obviously can come up with all of the assumptions that you want to back into probably any number that you can come up with. But it really comes down to how viral is the adoption going to be? Is there retail liquidity coming in? Are there developers building on that platform? And if those numbers are all going up higher, I find it hard to think otherwise that the token would not follow as well. Yeah, makes sense. Well, Tony, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. I've really enjoyed this conversation and it's good to get a fresh take on crypto and what's been happening in the space. I think the fun of fun strategy is an incredibly compelling approach. I subscribe to it. We do it for ourselves in the fintech space. I think it's a great portfolio construction mechanism. So I'm encouraged by what you're doing. And it's also going to result in good funds, smart money being funneled to those funds and then to builders who are actually out there shaping what the future of the space is. So I'm encouraged by that and want to thank you for spending time with us to chat about your plans. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to chat and would love to catch up in person next time you're in town. Sounds great. Thank you, Tony. Great. Thanks. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.